This episode is brought to you by Quills for the Day. Did you know that 60% of people are not using the proper quill recommended for their writing task? They just grab whatever feather happens to be lying about. Is your parakeet running out of tail feathers? Sorry, Beaky, I need to do my taxes. Well, Quills for the Day to the rescue. They offer a full assortment of quills, each labeled for its certified best use. A peregrine flight feather for business contracts. A mockingbird tail covert for thank you notes. Corvin retrices for letters home to mom. And of course, the flank plume of a king bird of paradise for love. And now when our listeners subscribe to their monthly catalog, they'll receive the perfect start to their avian correspondence tool collection. A two foot long peacock feather long recognized as the ideal general purpose writing tool. Use the promo code reread, one word, for an option to buy a handy pinewood carrying case so you'll be ready to epistolize at a moment's notice. And thank you, Quills for the Day, for sponsoring the Rereading Wolf podcast. Warning, the following discussion is deliberately riddled with spoilers and unhinged speculation on this nearly 40-year-old book, Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun. You can't read a Gene Wolfe story. You can only reread a Gene Wolfe story. Welcome to Rereading Wolfe. We don't pretend that this is the first time you and we have read these books. We want to understand them in as much detail as possible, and that means considering the works as a whole. Hi, I'm James Wynn. And I'm Craig Brewer. Craig, I am so happy. That's good. Dragon Stairs Press, the publishing company of Marianne Swanwick, Michael Swanwick's wife, created a beautifully illustrated, hand-stitched edition of our conversation with Michael, lightly edited, signed by Michael Swanwick himself. It was really cool. Somebody on Facebook said that it would be a great thing for their little micropress to do. And he was like, that'd be awesome, but somebody has to type it out. And... Me being a masochist said, sure, I'll do it. But yeah, it's a beautiful little book and he sold them earlier this week, uh, the week that we're putting this out or last week, I guess it would be now. And the cool thing was all of the copies that they had sold out some 78, I think he said. Yeah. Yeah. The title Swan Wolf. So amazing. And right. You can't get it now. It's only for the you know people who got on early. However, Marianne <laughs> Swanwick did gift us 18 copies for us to figure out how to give away. So we need some ideas. We've had some ideas, but we'd like some more about what would be fun and what would be a good way to do this. We've thought about story contests. We I was thinking if we did do a story contest that maybe like a contest for a brown book story would be mm-hmm. really fun. That's one thing we could try. But if you have other interesting ideas about what we might do with those, we'd love to hear it. Yeah. Well, naturally, you said you've been planning to publish your own brown book for as long as I've been talking to you. So, yep. Yep. I'm still working on it. COVID kind of <laughs> messed with things because I couldn't go over to my mom's house where all my dad's stuff was for a while. Yeah. But um, yeah, that's still, that's still coming. Yeah. I, I do like that idea. But we can always possibly do better. We'll see. And, you know, maybe we'll have a series of contests. So, so 
we'll just have to see what the best ones are. And definitely want to give one last thank you to both Michael and Marianne and all their work that they did for that and just generosity and giving us the stuff. And I'm glad it sold out because I think part of the reason maybe that they gave some of them to us was because they thought that maybe just an interview about one guy wouldn't sell, (laughs) (laughs) but, but it did. So that's, that's really exciting. You people are maniacs. Exactly. So let's go to comments for the last week. On Reddit, Goonhands likes my theory that the Hyacinth Dorcas picks on the Lake of Birds was through the mirror of the lake in another universe. That's nice when people agree with my cockamamie theories. (laughs) He says, I believe labyrinths and instances where Severian loses his way does connote time travel. Getting lost in the mist or fog may be a kind of labyrinth when in a boat or a ship. That being said, I think each room in the botanical gardens are each time machines. Well, that's an interesting idea. Uh, Is he saying that Severian is constantly wandering between times? It's hard for me to imagine that one, which yeah, first thing. It's weird, but we could think about it as if the sand garden, if he was jumping forward in time to when he sort of felt himself near the beach or something Mm -hmm. like that, that could be there. Uh, the jungle hut would possibly take him way back in time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we don't know exactly when the Lake of the Birds or the Cumaean might be. But um, I still think that all the talk about the manatees coming in suggests that they're somewhere else and not really just right next to the guy. We talked about that before. but Yeah, if they are manatees. <laughs> yeah, if that's what they are. So he certainly seems like they are somewhere else, which... In that context, also seems like they're probably some when else. Right. My picture is still that the mirrors are basically creating a reflection of another time, possibly another universe. And they're, so they're kind of in a, a, a midland where they're both interactions, they're both reflections are interacting with each other. Yeah. We'll have to wait till we get actually some mirrors in real life when we get to Jonas at real right. life in real time <laughs> in Severian's time then we'll see instead of just yeah. the story so on YouTube we got a comment Craig and maybe you can help me remember this someone asked hey you mentioned a book about Gnosticism that you had wondered might be on Wolf's Shelf but you didn't mention what it was oh <laughs> oops it's called the Gnostic Gospels by um Elaine Pagels or Pagels, P-A-G-E-L-S. And I know I heard about it on the Earth list. I'll have to go look and see if someone said that that actually was one that Wolf mentions, because I don't remember if that comes up in an interview somewhere or if someone said that he talked about it in a conversation. But that's the one that I have and that I know I read after somebody mentioned it on Earth. It's been updated many times. It's an older book, though. There've been a lot of new discoveries of texts that have come out since that was done. I know the last edition I remember was done right after the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls were Mm. really translated. So the Dead Sea Scroll information was added to it, uh, but I know other things have come since then. So it's, it's an older book. It's really good though. It's a nice, large historical comprehensive look at all the different Gnostic gospels, but it also has some commentary trying to put together um, an overall philosophy of what, you find in there. So, yeah. Yeah. I had mentioned on YouTube that it is a fantasy of all wolf readers to get an eyeball at wolf's bookshelves in the seventies and eighties, but absolutely. 
But without, you know, a time machine and some burglar tools, that's never going to happen. So yeah. on Facebook, Mickey Smith has some ideas about why the mirror room in Aniri's presence chamber has eight sides. He says, I'm just listening to the episode on Father Aniri's mirrors. That's chapter 20. During Craig's pontification on the reason for the octagonal mirror room shape. Pontification, Craig? I always thought... <laughs> Sometimes. And, <laughs> I think you pontificate a little more than I do, some, which is a good thing. I, I, I'll have you know that I am the pontificator around here. <laughs> I always thought of an octagon as the first polygon that begins to approximate a circle somewhat faithfully. And then he posted a link to a Reddit thread on the Explain Like I'm Five subreddit entitled, If I Had a Room covered completely in mirrors and turned on a flashlight, what would happen? And then uh, Mickey says, not sure it answers any questions regarding new sun, but it shows that Wolf was in good scientific company when pondering the peculiar behavior of a light within a mirrored room. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's cool. Cause that's still a, the way I just still have trouble knowing exactly what I'm supposed to be visualizing. And I think it's because anytime I think of myself in the room, I'm like, that would mess with the light and the perfect reflection. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, you know, it's, it's coming from someplace else though, in this case. Yeah. It's not, that's true. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how it would really work. It's not, it doesn't seem like a, an experiment that I could perform. Also, things are really popping at Olton's library. Nigel Price has just posted a 2017 review of Wolf's Operation Ares. Uh, listen, people, Operation Ares gets flack, but it's still a Wolf novel. Uh, maybe Wolf was still learning how to put the pieces together, but all the pieces are there. And you might want to pay attention to Olton's library in the future. Just <laughs> saying. <laughs> listen well, rereading Wolf podcast listeners. <laughs> Michael Andre Durisi had his Ask Me Anything on Reddit. Uh, Mark Garamini seems to have coordinated, and it was awesome. So check it out in the show notes. Also on Facebook, just to show that people don't only talk about the episodes in the Facebook group, Jordan Flato, infamous No Means No fanatic, previously posted a suggestion for the Hildegrin chapter. No Means No's, um, ca it's catching up. Mick Swanson posted a song by King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard, the song uh, Crumbling Castle. Ostensibly, he's pitching an outro song, but he's really just showing off an awesome band. <laughs> you know, the outros are very personal to me. I have spooky, witchy criteria for the ones I finally select. Craig, I've been wondering about that weird approach about doing an Ask Me Anything, and we do an Ask Me Anything just about every two weeks at least. <laughs> but I'll save that one. Unless someone asks me directly tomorrow. We'll just have to see. <laughs> All right. Chapter 26. Senate. A Senate is a fanfare. A series of trumpet notes that signal actors to enter or leave the stage. It shows up in Elizabethan theater. Here's another reference to theater. Yep. And I have to admit, I opened this up when I was rereading last week to catch up and just to reread again and had a half second moment where I was like, wait, who is Senate? Who did I forget? <laughs> In the last chapter, as Severian and Najia shared a meal, as Dorcas got cleaned up, 
Things are going pretty hot and heavy on the couch with Sev and Aj, and then Severian sees a note. It was left by Severian's father, Owen, and put where Dorcas would see it if she had remained sitting on the couch. It says, the woman with you has been here before. Do not trust her. Trudeau says the man is a torturer. You are my mother. Come again. And Aji's reaction to it completely changes the way Severian views her. Mm-hmm. He now is convinced that she's playing him in some way. This chapter is the part where Severian attempts to run down the author of the note. Severian has read the note and had a moment to understand it when Ajia jumps from her chair, the one that Severian pushed her into, and grabs the note and throws it out of the tree. Then she just stands there, looking at Severian and Terminus Est and back. He's finished cleaning it and has put it back together, and it's leaning on the arm of the couch. Severian supposes that she was afraid he would kill her, but are we sure of that? Maybe she's weighing what prize she values more, him or that sword. Could be. I did notice that the way he describes it is that she was thinking uh, that he imagines her thinking that he's going to strike off her head and throw it after the note. And it's just that one (laughs) little extra detail that makes me wonder, was Severian thinking that at the moment? Um, Mm -hmm. Just because who knows, but but a tiny thing. Yeah. So finally she talks. Did you read it? Severian, say you didn't. I read it, but I don't understand it. Then don't think about it. Severian says, settle down. The note wasn't for me. Maybe it was for you. But it was put where only I could see it. Wolf has put Severian just in the spot that I have felt so often when I'm reading this book. What I mean is that I'm looking at all these pieces. None of them seem to fit. It's all very confusing. And there doesn't seem to be a key to how to make it all work. So Severian starts to puzzle through it trying to break up the puzzle and answer what he can. The note was for someone's mother, right? Mm-hmm. You are my mother. Come again. Do you have a child, Asia? How old are you? She says 23. So she's about three years older than Severian or maybe four. So this whole passage, when he starts to use that logic, this is typical wolf. Let's try to explain something, but it totally barks up the wrong tree when it starts, right? Because he should be thinking about Dorcas <laughs> right, instead. Right. He's thinking about Azure. He's asking exactly the right questions. If he had asked those of Dorcas and she could remember, mm-hmm. then we would learn a right. whole lot, a whole lot faster. Yeah. 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 It's the expert who attempts to explain things and always gets it wrong. It's mm-hmm. pretty much a classic wolf trope. So 23 is old enough to have a baby, she says, but. She hasn't had one, and she offers to let Severian examine her belly for stretch marks. Severian says something interesting here. I tried to make a mental calculation and discovered I did not know enough about the maturation of women. Which is, I mean, it's... Sequestered life. Yeah, exactly. It's funny. Um, But it's also, I think, goes a long way to kind of explain a lot of his reactions. I mean, so many times people will talk about Severian as, oh, he just hops into bed with everybody or, you know, how mm-hmm. little commitment he seems to have to he'll change from girl to girl, that that kind of thing. But yeah, when we remember he, all he really knew of women growing up were either the prisoners or that crazy place next door where the scary ones lived. It's a, yeah, it's a rather uh, singular and stilted view of femininity. So, mm-hmm. so Severian interrogates her. How old were you when you first got your period? 
That's kind of a personal question, Severian. <laughs> 13, uh, she said. So she'd be 14 when the baby was born. And now the child would be nine. Okay. Well, a smart nine-year-old could have written that note. This sounds like an earth list. <laughs> Does Agia want to know what it says? No. Okay. Well, how old is Dorcas? 18, 19? Agia just says, you shouldn't think about the note, whatever it was. He insists Agia guess how old Dorcas is. She says, I'd say your drab little mystery is 16 or 17, hardly more than a child. A drab is a, a slut, your little slut. Severian says something analogous to speak of the devil and he shall appear. He says, sometimes, as I suppose everyone has noticed, talking about an absent person seems to summon them like eidolons, like ghosts. So it was now. So he mentions eidolons here. And of course, eidolons later on are going to be central to the actual story. So it's not just a casual remark, but the way he talks about eidolons being something that can show up just like like absent people makes me think, okay, are these hologram people very common? Um, or is that something that he would say at this point because he's gotten so used to dealing with them by this point, you know, as the older Severian looking back. But if we're thinking of Eidolons as the actual things that are created by whatever the you know, magical mystery machine is that can look into his mind and create his memories, then this seems like a really weird comparison. If we're talking about Eidolons just as a general term for spirits or fake people or something like that, then it it's maybe less conspicuous. But, um, but yeah, I was just, did you have any sense of if that was a weird comparison at this point? Well, my sense of Eidolons, the use of Eidolons is that it commonly means ghosts. Mm -hmm. They they are distinct from the technical term equaster, which is something else. But often people, when referring to equasters, speak of them as eidolons. I think in Earth of the New Sun, Iada says to Severian, asks whether he's an eidolon, and I, he sort of says yes, I think, if I recall. But the truth is, what he's saying is, you know, he doesn't know anything about the technical details of equasters. As right. far as he's concerned, all of these appearance would be would be ghosts, and I thought so. I think eidolons generally, unless there's something in the text to suggest otherwise, at the moment, just means ghosts. Okay, yeah. If he is actually later making some kind of distinction between aquasters like Malrubius and Triskel and eidolons, because I think I was thinking of them as synonymous, which made me feel weird here right. where it's like, that's just, that's a strange thing that needs to be commented <laughs> yeah. on. But yeah, if why it just do, means ghosts. Why do equesters suddenly show up out of nowhere? No, no, no. I think it's. Right, right. No, it's kind of like, it's kind of like Bloody Mary in the mirror when you say her name three times. Oh yeah. Kind oh of yeah. Like, oh yeah. I totally get the, the overall sense of it like that. I was just wondering if there was something else to know there. I think it would be useful to go and just do a search for the, every time the word yeah. Eidolon is used. Yeah. I, I, think I may do, do that. that. So out comes Dorcas from behind the screen. Clean. He says, a round-breasted slender girl of singular grace. I have seen whiter skin than hers, but that was not a healthy whiteness. Clearly, Severian gets his dark hair from his mom and his pale complexion from his grandmother. But 
I don't know. That's probably not how heredity actually works. Right. So two things here about his real quick, just the fact that he, that Wolf, Wolf and, and or Severian, the first thing to describe someone is, is round breasted. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but also the other thing too, is that it, it doesn't, that detail, I mean, doesn't really fit with the way he describes Dorcas all the rest of the time. Right. Cause he's always describing her as incredibly petite and skinny most of the time. And that just, that detail just stands out a little bit. Um, mm-hmm to me just because it's not how I picture right. her. It's not how most artists would picture. Her. Yeah. So it just, a it, that's a weird thing <laughs> to me that to be the first thing that, that you describe. But, um, but also I guess I know how old Severian is. But, yeah. Not for, yeah. not for Severian. Yeah. yeah. It's pretty typical for Severian and for his age, I guess it's probably not even surprising. Severian says Dorcas in her paleness seemed to glow. Freed of filth, her hair was pale gold. Her eyes were as they had always been, the deep blue of the world river Ouroboros in my dream. When was, oh, that was with the, with the ball dander stream is mm-hmm. what he's talking about. Mm-hmm. I wonder if there's an intended connection there for real. I don't know. To bring up Ouroboros in that, it seems like there must be. Um, I haven't puzzled it out, but that's what I was trying to think of when I noticed it. Uh, Just because it's so conspicuous a reference. Um, Well, it could be that that dream is the only time he's ever seen the water that blue. That's the other possibility. Absolutely. And I mean, we we know for a fact that he hasn't ever really been there up until this point. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing, of course is that he talks about her glowing and it's not just a nice way to describe a nice young woman. And, you know, he's, right. she is, I don't think that she is literally glowing, but the fact that he would describe her that way, that he's thinking of her in terms of light where of course she is mm-hmm. in some yeah. way or another, just touched the sun, the white fountain. So, yeah. But I also think he's making a reference. He previously said that, he's seen people as white as her, but they were an unhealthy whiteness. Whereas in her right. case, it was this white and it just looked really healthy. So when Dorcas comes in, she sees Ajia naked there and says, oops, excuse me. But the stocky scullion that was washing her is in her way and she can't back out. Ajia says, I had better put my rags on again before your pet faints. Dorcas says, I won't look. I don't care if you do. But... And this is a little bit against our claim that she has a strange uncomfortableness with nakedness. She turns her back to them as she puts on her gown, but you know, maybe she doesn't want them to see her crying. That was more my sense of it. I mean, they both at this point, they've been around the three of them. I mean, shame is less of an issue. I feel like from the way that they're describing it. And that's really more what she's doing. Mm -hmm. Looking the other way, she says, we have to go, Severian. It's almost time for the duel. If she had changed her mind about betraying him, she's changed it back now. Actually, she puts it a little differently. She says that the trumpet is about to sound. So she explains how the process works. If she changed her mind about betraying him, she's changed it back now. So as the setting sun appears to touch the machinations of the wall. Okay, let's talk about this word machinations because it's not machinations it's not the it's no, machinations no, no. yeah right it's not a word interestingly mm-hmm. wolf did not include this word in his glossary of words uh, for shadow of the torture that he 
he wrote into uh, Castle of the Otter or Castle of Days, depending on which one you have. Fortunately, Lexicon Earthus has arrived to rescue us. <laughs> it says that this is not an uncommon garbling of the word machicolation. Machicolations are projections from the top of a castle wall that extend over invaders so you can drop things on their heads. Now, perhaps Wolf made a mistake, but if he did, why did he not include the word in his glossary? Lexicon Earthus proffers that it is Asia who could be making a mistake, that it's a Freudian slip of the word machination because she's scheming against Severian. Or the other option is Wolf could have made a typo. But where's the fun in that? Yeah, and it's a typo that survived different editions of the book. Yeah. Um, had to go check. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, he may have just decided to commit to it after it all went through. Ah, that's probably a good idea. So as soon as the setting of sun appears to touch the wall's machiolations, a first trumpet is sounded at Sanguinary Field. Trumpets are going to come up in Dr. Talus's play in Claw of the Conciliator, and I'm still daunted by that play. So the thing is, this signal has nothing to do with the duels. It tells the guards to close Perilous Gate, the road north out of Nessus. But when that trumpet blows, that's the start of the dueling. The duelists have, from that time until the sun sinks below the horizon, to start their fight. Not when it sinks behind the wall, I think, because Ajia says it's when true night comes. At true night, the trumpet sounds a tattoo. A tattoo is a call sounded shortly before taps as a notice to go to quarters. It sounds like this. That's just the first 15 seconds. It goes on for just under a minute. There's a link to this recording in the show notes. So this is the Senate. One thing that Wolf adds when he defines Senate in Castle of the Otter is that it's particularly used when an actor is supposed to come on stage. Um, he says the trumpet right. flourish used to cue an actor. And that's not the definition he needed to say. I mean, it could have just been a flourish of trumpets and that would have been fine. And of course, also... Here, we're not talking about actors, we're talking about fighters. But I really, I think it's kind of cheeky that what he does is he describes them as an actors coming on in the definition that he gives, because of course, Agilus is acting. And he's working in all of the references to acting and theater that he's done throughout this whole entire book yeah. so far. Yeah. It's just a fun thing. There are lots of times where Wolf does little things like that in the definitions in the glossary that he gives that I just think are cool. Incidentally, um, there's one point where in a previous chapter, I had written it out, but I don't know why it wasn't in my final thing, where Ajia says, uh, he's a, he's an armature in costume to Hilgren. And Hilgren says, oh, he's not in, he, is he the only one in costume? And she says, yeah, yeah, I'm wearing costume too. I, di I didn't say it was, I was, you know, real. I didn't say that I was really mm -hmm. anything, anyone yeah. important. And so it, once again, there's another reference to all of the, the I want to go through all the references to theater at that point, because here she's playing a role. She's admitting to being in costume. 
She's yeah. Severian's in costume in his mantle. Um, it just, yeah, it goes on and on. So I want to talk about that. Cool. Now, at that point, when they play the final tattoo, not even people with special passes can get the gates to be opened. And coincidentally, anyone challenged who didn't show up has, quote, refused satisfaction. He can be assaulted wherever he is found, and an armager or exultant can engage assassins without soiling his honor. Uh, Asia is going to engage assassins and isn't going to care a whit for her honor. <laughs> the scullion is standing by nodding to all this, so Asia is not making it up unless she's been paid to. But that would be a lot to plan in advance. Then Abin, the innkeeper, shows up, who might well be in on the scheme, and says, Sir, if you indeed have a mortal appointing. And Severian interrupts and says, Right, we're going. Dorcas has completely missed out on all the food and asks if she can have some wine. Severian's a little surprised and nods. He says, The innkeeper poured her a glass, which she held in both hands like a child. Aw, how cute. Severian asks for paper, a quill, and ink. And Abin says, oh, you want to write out your will? Well, here you go. We have a place reserved for that. He says a bower, which is usually an inner room, any room that's not a public room, like your living room or the foyer or the kitchen. He says, there's no charge. And if you like, I'll hire a boy who'll carry the document to your executor. <laughs> this is an inn with all the perks, even a room where you can write out your will. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. I would want to have the health inspector show up if you had a place yeah. for people to write their will while you were there. <laughs> so Severian takes his sword and he leaves Agia and Dorcas to watch his avern. Uh, really, who's going to steal that? This bower, this room is actually a platform perched on a small limb, just barely big enough to stand a desk and stool. There are several crow quill pens, paper, and a pot of ink. But he's not there to write his will. Instead, he rewrites the note. Finally, his perfect memory has a practical use. <laughs> yep, it seems to be the same paper of the note, and the ink and the script seem comparable when he writes it out with this ink and quill. As we've seen people do before, he puts sand on what he wrote so the ink won't smear. And then he folds the paper up and puts it in a, quote, seldom used compartment of his saber tash. Remember that the claw is in there and genius Severian never sees it. He says, no messenger is required. Do you know anyone named Trudeau? So Severian is comfortable with the idea that he's about to die. But before he does... He's going to figure out who sent him this note and what it means. That is a man after my own heart. <laughs> I, I also will not let bad news from my doctor deter me from breaking down this book. <laughs> so the innkeeper says, uh, Trudeau, sir? Yes, it's a common enough name. Uh, surely it is, sir. I know that. It's just that I was trying to think of somebody that might be known to me and somebody, if you understand me, sir, in your exalted position, some armager or anyone, anyone at all. Was that the name of our waiter? No, 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 no. His name is Owen. There we go. 
I had a neighbor once named Trudeau, but that was years ago, before I bought this place. I don't suppose it would be him you're after. <laughs> what? I think Abin is being deliberately unhelpful at this point. I don't know if he thinks Severian is onto something or what, but he's not going to go out of his way to help Severian solve this mystery, whatever it is. Then there's my ostler here. His name is Trudeau. <laughs> I'm sure Severian is just rolling his eyes in his mind. Mm-hmm. An ostler is the guy in a livery who tends to the horses and mules. Yeah, that's the guy I want to talk to. Severian writes, the innkeeper nodded, his chin vanishing in the fat that circled his neck. There's a detail for you. Also, he says, the steps creaked beneath his weight. So Abin says, as you wish, sir. Not that he's likely to be able to tell you much, but then he doesn't know what Severian's going to ask him. He says, he's from far south, I'll warn you, and from the other side of the river. He means he's from the southern part of the city, Mm -hmm. probably just outside the citadel, which is how Trudeau knew Severian was a torturer. Yep. And not a mere carnifex, as other people seem to believe. He doesn't mean the far southern icy lands where Roche's people come from. Severian says, I suspect I know what part of the city he comes from. (laughs) The innkeeper is a guy who can't shut up, though. He says, do you now? Well, that's interesting, sir. Very interesting. I've heard one or two say they could tell such things by the way a man's dressed or how he spoke, but I wasn't aware you'd laid eyes on Trudeau. As the saying is, he calls for Trudeau. Trudeau, Trudeau, and then reigns. I can't find a reference to Reigns as a name or title. I assume it's the title for the ostler. No one. Yeah, appears, or it's just something something that he's yelling that usually they would yell to get his attention. You know, mm-hmm. like it's time to grab the reins. Yeah. Right. No one appears though. A single flagstone the size of a large table top was laid at the foot of the stairs, and they all stepped on it. Severian can see the shadows of crowds of people heading over to the dueling areas. And Abba keeps talking because, you know, that's what he does. (laughs) Pity they won't stop here. Not that I won't get some of them coming back, but a dinner before is where the money is that is getting people to pay for a dinner that they'll never eat. I speak frankly, for I can see that young as you are, sir, you're too sensible not to know that every business is run to make a profit. I try to give good value. And as I've said, We've a famous kitchen. Trudeau, I have to have one, for no other sort of food will agree with me. I'd starve, sir, if I had to eat what most do. Trudeau, you louse farm, where are you? I like that term, louse farm, and I'm going to use it. Yeah. This is also the part where I feel like he seems much more like Butterbur. Yeah, yeah. If yeah. you're thinking of Lord of the Rings, this is the one where he talks too much. He sort of tells too many things that he's thinking. He starts telling this poor kid who's about to die all about <laughs> how, yeah, we, we make money off of guys like you dying. So, yeah. you know, but you're, you're sensible. You you would you know how that goes. We couldn't stay open if it weren't for losers like you. Yeah. Finally, a dirty boy comes out from behind a trunk, I guess. What, he was sleeping back there, or maybe it's blocking another portion of the area? He says, Trudeau's not back there, and Abin sends the kid to look for him. It's only watching these people that Severian now fully realizes that he's, quote, liable to die before the moon shone. 
accounting for the note seemed futile and childish. Don't give up, Severian. <laughs> I've been telling Severian that not all the people who are going to the field are going there to fight. Most are spectators. Some only come one time because they know a fighter or because it's on their bucket list. You know what's on Severian's bucket list? Finding Trudeau. <laughs> but other people come every night or most nights of the week. He says they're specialists. They only watch duels with a specific type of weapon. And, quote, they pretend to know more about those than them that use them, which perhaps some do. After your victory, sir, two or three will want to buy you a round. If you let them, they'll tell you what you did wrong and what the other man did wrong. But you'll find they don't agree. Severian says that their dinner is not to include guests. And now, Agia and Dorcas are coming down the stairs with the Avern. Yeah. Okay. Now, one one thing before we move on to the next part that I think is possibly meaningful is the fact that Severian does say, I, I'm focusing on things I shouldn't be. I'm focusing on insignificant minor details. When we, in fact, know that no, actually finding out who you are and that this is your grandmother who was dead and that you brought back to life. That's precisely what he should be focused on. And this whole bit with the, the, with the challenge is really, you know, a tiny blimp bump in the road if it weren't for being connected to the claw. But, um, <laughs> but if he I dies, like that, it's not going to matter who his father is or who his grandmother oh, right. is. Oh, right. But I like that, that now that he has the claw, I mean, if we're thinking, going back to the idea of, you know, symbols make us, well, the claw is a big symbol and it's already, possibly, you know, kind of, of leading him towards something. So he even makes a comment here that seems like he's almost saying, I don't know why I was so focused on this, but I was. Well, there's a reason mm -hmm. that he should be so focused on it, of course. But it's just a right. neat thing that, that Wolf already has him sort of thinking about that. Like, why am I focused on something that I know is not immediately important? Um, and yet he still is going for it. Yeah. Right. Now, this next large section of Reverie contains the majority of what's left of this chapter. The rest is just wandering around looking for Trudeau. But I do th not think that Wolf is just showing off. I think it has genuine purpose to this overall story. So I'm going to go ahead and read a large portion of it, right? Severian relates again. How strongly I desired Asia. When men are talking to women, they talk as though love and desire are two separate entities. And women who often love us and sometimes desire us, maintain the same fiction. The fact is, they are aspects of the same thing, as I might have talked to the innkeeper on the north side of his tree and the south. If we desire a woman, we soon come to love her for her condescension in submitting to us. This indeed has been the original foundation of my love for Thecla. And since, if we desire her, she always submits, in imagination at least, some element of love is ever present. On the other hand, if we love her, we soon come to desire her, since attraction is one of the attributes a woman should possess, and we cannot bear to think she is without any of them. In this way, men come to desire even women whose legs are locked in paralysis, and women desire those men who are impotent, save with other men like themselves. But no one can say from what it is that what we call love or desire is born. As Asia came down the stairs, 
One side of her face was lit by the last light of the day and the other thrown into shadow. Her skirt, split nearly to the waist, permitted a flash of silken thigh. And all I had lost in feeling for her a few moments before, when I had pushed her away, came back doubled and doubled again. She saw that in my face, I know. And Dorcas, hardly a step behind her, saw it too and looked away. Now, first of all, there's this picture of Asia, one half of her face lit by the sun, the other half in darkness, which I think is important to her character. But I want to propose a curiositus earthus at this point. Curiositas Urthus. I think this speech is not a meaningless aside. Considering this scene and Aja's behavior up until this point, and in the next chapter, it's made me doubt a portion of my skepticism about Aja. I really think that it is likely that despite the fact that she is supposed to be plotting his death, despite the fact that she only met him hours ago, she has truly fallen in love with him by some definition, by the definition Severian is using here. He's arguing that love and desire are not two completely different things. He says that we can love someone for being so desirable and desiring us. We can desire someone because we love them. I think that by the time Severian found the note, Aja did not intend to reveal herself to him, but she did not plan on letting him go through with this duel. Maybe she would attempt to distract him with wine and sex and make him miss his appointment. But, I mean, remember, she just met him a few hours ago. How is this credible? Mm-hmm. That Aja would let herself fall in love with a man she was hurting to his death like a calf. I think that the only way this works, okay, brace yourself, is by resorting once again to the first Severian theory. To start, when Severian claps eyes on her, he immediately feels a strange attraction to her, one he can't understand. He says he feels it right now. Well, what if Agia feels the same way? Michael Andre Durisi believes that the first Severian and Agia were lovers, a, a Bonnie and Clyde duo. And there's some support for that from the standpoint of the first Severian theory, that is. In the Ragshop chapter, when Severian immediately sees Asia, he says, I cannot explain the desire I felt for her then and afterward. I could no more have resisted her than I could have resisted the blind greed of earth if I had tumbled over a cliff. And then in the challenge chapter, he says, I have said that I cannot explain my desire for her, and it's true. I loved her with a love thirsty and desperate. I felt that we too might commit some act so atrocious that the world seeing us would find it irresistible. So, Craig, is it possible that Asia is feeling the same thing? Suppose Asia is feeling what Severian is feeling, an irrational, consuming attraction. They were lovers in a former life. As I understand the first Severian, they'd have been lovers in another universe. And just as reincarnated people are said to reintegrate into each other's lives, Severian and Asia are feeling the same 
thing. Yes, she was supposed to lure him to his death. Yes, she's done this con before. But as early as the Fiacre ride, Asia has been speaking to Severian in contradictory fashions. She's been going off script in her job to keep Severian on task until the duel. She's been trying unsuccessfully to get him into the Garden of Delectation. She's jealous of Dorcas. And just as she decided that she won't let him be killed, there's that note. Why does she fear it? She says it's because she's had a premonition. Okay. Let's take that seriously. When I first read this, I thought that this thing about a premonition and the tears she was crying was all an act. But let's suppose that maybe it's not. How can that work without imposing some sort of magic or pseudoscience hand-waving? From a first Severian perspective, I think that Severian and Asia exhibit multiple parallels in this universe iteration and the last. Maybe. But I won't get into it here. It just gets bigger, though. But I do think Asia and the first Severian were together for a time. There was a breakup, and it was a doozy. In the Citadel of the Autark, <laughs> Severian has this fantasy about having one of those winged beasts that he rode on in the dream in Baldander's room. He thinks of Dorcas saying her line in Dr. Talos's play. She says, what will you do? Summon some ironies to destroy me? And Severian says, Yes, indeed. I would have if I could. If I had been Hathor, I would have drawn them from some horror behind the world, birds with heads of hags and tongues of vipers. At my order, they would have threshed the forest like wheat and beaten cities flat with their great wings. And yet, if I could, I would have appeared at the last moment to save her not walking coldly off afterward in the way that we all wish to do when, as children, we imagine ourselves rescuing and humiliating the loved one who has given us some supposed slight, but raising her in my arms. And Craig, this note reminds Asia of that breakup in another life, in another world. Those tears that she cried when she begged Severian to throw away the letter were real. And this conflict is why it's so hard to get a bead on Asia's motives. Why does she hate Severian so much after this? Not because of Agilis, but because she loves him and Severian has rejected her. She can't decide whether to kiss him or to rip him off. It's confusing. <laughs> Love and hate are similar emotions. She hates him because she loves him, and this constant pursuit of him is born out of her spurned love. It's almost like dating him to haunt him, to, to chase him around the country. Now, all this makes her emotions and actions fit, but it doesn't explain her backstory, not the implications that she's Hathor's sex doll escaped from her box, not the many, many implications that she's a witch or run away from the witches. And it doesn't explain Agilis, who I really don't think is her brother. He's wearing a mask, nor why he haggled so desperately for the sword. I mean, desperately, trying to secure the sword before Agia arrived. He's not totally on board with this con. He's afraid of Agia, I think. So that's it. The big change for me here is I'm willing to believe that this con was a regular 
thing with Agia and Agilus. Despite it being a plan that doesn't really seem to be very good unless you know a lot about the mark. I would categorize this with the Autark maintaining a brothel along with his other duties. Up until now, I've treated Agia's friendly talk with Severian as a con. I've treated her desire for him as a weird fetish to have sex with a man she's going to murder. And I've looked for a sign in that conversation to all the other strange signals I've seen about her. But what works here is that I think it's possible to break off Agia's original intent and her varying motivations toward Severian and all the things she says that seem at cross purposes. These things I can explain, I think. And accept that. And yes, still have Agia and Agilus still planning to use the duel to kill Severian for his sword and that they had done it before. And to take all that and sequester it from who is Agilus? Is he really your brother? What is the purpose of him wearing that mask? And why did he continue to go with this plan without ripping off the mask and ratting Agia out? What led Agia coming south from her old life? And she surely did have another life in the North why does Agilus go along with this when he's so obviously unsuited for it? What is her relationship to Hathor and what is his motivation? That's all I got. All right. So I will eventually put on my skeptic hat here just because I feel like that's my job at this point. But um, I want to say first, one thing that I think you have convinced me of with a lot of this is that, yeah, she is definitely in love with Severian and hating him, or at least will come to hate him pretty after Agilus at the same time. Um, so whatever else, whatever reasons, I think that makes a lot of sense. Cause I said way back in the beginning that the one thing that always bothered me about Asia was why she becomes so obsessed with revenge and that yes, mm -hmm. killing her brother would make sense, but it seems way over the top. Well, if you can read this passage as sort of proof that she has fallen in love, maybe partly, maybe just for reasons without even talking about for Severian, just for all kinds of reasons that have happened. Maybe he just does seem charming. He's confident. Um, Dorcas shows up and then there's just a little jealousy that he's paying more attention to her rather than, than Asia. And that can kind of, you know, add all those things up and maybe, yeah, she's just kind of falling for him a little bit. And then when she does have reason to hate him after he kills Agilus, then it just makes everything much more complicated for her and can everything can kind of snowball mm -hmm. into this, this lifelong obsession. So yeah, that part I actually do believe now. And before then I'd never really thought that Asia had any kind of feelings for him. I just assumed it was all a con, mm -hmm. but I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, it, it works with this passage and, and it just works for a lot of other things about Asia. So I feel like that I'm, I'm definitely convinced of. Um, as far as First Severian, first of all, I got to say, this is a nice example of how First Severian can help explain certain things about mm -hmm. possible motivations. You're probably, if if you're listening right now and you're like, I wasn't really in the First Severian idea <laughs> to go with, then this probably isn't going to convince you um, because maybe you don't see Aji as, mu as, as much of a problem as I think we do. But I still think this is a really good way of using it to explain things. So, so let's get into sort of some, this is, this is the challenge to make your argument stronger. Oh, yeah. we'll I, I will be the devil's advocate, um, <laughs> which is pretty, not, not too far off. So thank you. Um, attorney. Yes, <laughs> the first thing I would say is that it's just much simpler to suggest that 
yeah, she just happened to fall in love with him because they're both young. All the things that he's explained about why he fell in love could just seem like lust. And yeah, it's just that she's gotten kind of wrapped up in this and then everything, you know, goes totally off the rails after the whole Agilis situation. It's just a simpler explanation. Um, and there are ways too, that I feel like you can maybe read some of the passages in this chapter where they're arguing or even the way with the note, it could be that her panic over seeing it is just being panicked in the moment of feeling like, Oh no, whatever that says, certainly it's saying something about, Hey, this woman's done this before she's going to you know, basically just go take all your stuff after the battle. And she mm-hmm. feels like it's just the last nail in the coffin of the con right. um, to get his things. And so all of those things, then the sort of weird way that she, like at the beginning of this chapter, it's, it's odd to me how in one sentence she'll be like, you know, you asked me when I first menstruated and she just answers his question without <laughs> without mm-hmm. even sort of saying that's private, you know, so she'll do that. But then other times she'll be like, why are you worried about this? What are you thinking of? It's just, it's, it seems more like someone who's panicked mm-hmm. and who's just not thinking straight. And that could be rather than like you said, she's channeling all these sort of emotions from a multiple universe kind of thing mm-hmm. in previous relations. So that would be one thing that, that it seems like there are maybe simpler explanations that are available without having to jump to a different version of Severian. But that doesn't necessarily contradict what you're saying. I mean, it certainly could also be true. Well, I, I do agree that it's simpler not to include this explanation. If you think she makes sense, if you think Agia makes sense, then yeah. What am I, what, what, what sort of a snake oil am I, you know, selling here to you. But if you think that she's peculiar, if you think that she's acting strangely for someone who's supposed to be a con artist, then yeah, this helps, this helps a lot. And it does seem strange to me that anyone outside of what we see it happen in many movies where some people who just meet and then next thing, you know, you know, within 20 minutes, they're kissing, but it's, it is a little strange to put that in a wolf story. He does tend to be a little less, he's not really romantic in that way. The other thing about this scene is that, yeah, she panics when she sees the note and maybe she's thinking, oh my gosh, someone's going to rat me out. And that's her initial demeanor when she first sees that note. But then she does seem to have a real premonition and it, freaks her out. And in her reaction actually is the catalyst that causes Severian to think that she's up to something, to say, oh, I've got to read this note. She ceases to be the cool cucumber that calmly leads men into duels to be murdered for their money. She mm. or or potentially, you know, smothers people in the streets with a lambrequin. <laughs> He hasn't read the note. She had many opportunities to say, oh, look at that silly willy note. Here, here, give me a kiss. That's that's all kissy, kissy, handsy, handsy. Let me just throw that note over the, oops, the wind caught it. You know, 
But you know, at first she's fine. Oh, how cute. Severian got a secret letter. Oh, that's really great. And then suddenly there's a change and she panics. She's never seen the what's in the letter, but she panics. It could. That that leads me though to the the next thing when you talked about her her premonition and whether or not that was something, you know, magical or or whatever. Um you could also just say that thinking that she, you know, you said so, so yeah, she panics just from from seeing the note rather than even knowing what it's saying. But even a simple little deduction, I mean, she's definitely having a running a con here. And mm-hmm. if someone's gonna sneak somebody a note, it's probably because, especially if you're in the place where you've done a con before, it's probably because somebody's breaking up what you're trying to do and trying to tell someone the truth about something. I mean, it's a totally logical and justified idea that, hey, somebody in the inn is trying to warn Severian. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think would think that, but doesn't, but is she, but she blows the con really as soon as she sees it. She doesn't, she doesn't oh, like yeah. that. She blows it. And again, that could be totally from panic. Yeah. I suppose she doesn't strike me as the panicky type. It's kind of like I said, it's more what you find plausible or realistic mm-hmm. in terms of character motivation at this point and just in the right. specific little little things. And that's actually hard to tell, like what the, the absolute right way to read that passage is. I will agree there. Um, right. It's also the kind of thing where because she specifically talks about having some kind of magic premonition. And it being wolf, that's where I'm like, oh, so it's not. <laughs> so I mean that that would that would be something that I always am skeptical of. But then we also joke that everything in Wolf is true. So maybe she was having I mean, she and well, I guess it's it is true. She did have a premonition. She knew that something was gonna tell him, and yeah. Mm-hmm. So that it eventually does expose Depending on what you think. her. Yeah. And she's been here before. You know, even even just that would be enough to uh expose the con, as it were. Right. Um so one other thing is that in the passage where Severian's talking about, you know, how it is that we imagine our lovers and things like that, that's one of these places where he's saying, basically, we always idealize someone in our imagination and we always think the best of him. So the part, for example, where he says, uh, let's see, the way men choose to desire women whose legs are locked in paralysis. You know, it's like our imagination mm-hmm. fills in the gaps because we can't imagine that the person that we love has any flaws. That's kind of saying not that he necessarily had a, I mean, if I'm reading it right, what you were kind of suggesting is that one thing that Severian might be saying here is that not that he's just idealizing her in his mind, but he's actually remembering another time when she was better (laughs) or at least was in love with him and not trying to get it. When he loved her, a time when he loved her, when he desired, he desires her and thus he loves her. He loves her. And I believe that what he's saying is that this explains why Asia has fallen in love with him because she feels this strong desire. She's fallen in love with him as well, or acted the same as if she were in love with him because they're, they're just two sides of the same coin. And it could be the only thing there is that he's talking more just specifically since he talks about how this is more about, you know, I, the, the, I like the line that, uh, she always submits in imagination at mm-hmm. least that anytime we're <laughs> thinking about her, we always make sure that, that, you know, the reality or, or that our love conquers everything. And there's right. always, but, it, but it's always couched, couched here in imagination. 
um, in that he's kind of talking about ways that he was maybe fooling himself, which is a little different from, you know, there's a deeper reality. It's, which is one way you could read this. I mean, if you're a true romantic, you'd read this passage and say, yes, when someone truly loves and desires someone else, they overlook all of their flaws mm-hmm. and they just see them as the beautiful thing. That's a very romantic way to look at it. There's also the way a, a sort of more cynical way to look at it and say that, yeah, whenever we're caught up in all those hormones and everything else, we don't see the reality of what's right under our noses. Or as he puts it, when we love someone, we see them as desirable because it doesn't make any sense to have those feelings without having that quality as well. Right. And what that would be doing here is that it's it's erasing the very real evidence he had <laughs> that she was trying to get him. And now he's like, but I fell in love with her again, you know, and I was attracted mm-hmm. again, which, again, being really cynical, you could just say, oh, the hormones kicked in one more time. <laughs> and, you know, and young little lusty Severian is just getting that feel. But he's got two girls there that he could feel that for. And it's Asia that he feels it for. And he even comments early on that, you know, she's not really all that pretty. Yeah. Now, what I do like though, about that idea is that this, I feel like in some ways would like, if you're not going to just Occam's razor it all to death, then yeah, this is one of those places where it's kind of like, well, why would he be in love with her after all of this? Like why, you know, why would he, after she's just tried to take away evidence that she might be conning him. Mm-hmm. Why does he kind of fall for her again? Right. Like he says that he does like how stupid naive <laughs> is this guy. And the fact that he's sort of deliberately pointing out here, you know, I made a mistake, you know, <laughs> like I, I fell for her again and I was, I was wrong. Then there are different ways you could take that. I mean, I think you could just take the character route and say, yeah, Severian's pointing out here that, at this point, he was still very young and naive. Mm. And e- even though all this stuff sounds nice and romantic that he's just talked about, it's also a way of saying, you know, when you got puppy eyes for somebody, your brain doesn't work quite as it should. Right. <laughs> and so that's what was totally going on with him. But you could also look at it as, like you said, suggestive of something else totally that's going on. Right. That, yeah, his idea of Asia may include someone who doesn't have negative intentions for what's going on here. Right. He's not done with his thought process there, but um, there's a little break here. He says that Ajia is still angry with him and he feels like maybe she has the right to be because he's under the same insanity that she is. But mm-hmm. Ajia smiles anyway. He can tell that she wants him. She can't hide that. But Either he can tell at the moment that she's still covering up more or he's speaking from later knowledge, but he can tell that what she can't hide is her desire for him, but she's still hiding more. And it's kind of funny still, whether it's true or not. It's also just that that sentence is also just phrased weird mm-hmm. and it's funny <laughs> when you're like, but, but Asia was angry with me still, as perhaps she had a right to be. So although she smiled for policy's sake and could not have concealed the ache in her loins if she would, <laughs> yet she withheld much. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it's just such a Baroque way of right. putting yeah. it. Yeah, it's so funny. Yeah. So at this point, Severian has some bad relationship advice to give us. <laughs> But when Asia, who I believe is crazy in love with Severian, is kissing him in Agilus's cell when, at, while she's fishing in his saber tash for the claw, when she says that she's trying to help him, but she can't choose between him and the Khan, it's just the crazy, truly unhealthy relationship 
that he's about to describe here in a minute. Here's what he says. I think it is in this that we find the real difference between those women whom, if we are to remain men, we must offer our lives, and those who, again, if we are to remain men, we must overpower and outwit if we can, and use as we never would a beast, that the second will never permit us to give them what we give the first. Agia enjoyed my admiration and would have been moved to ecstasy by my caresses. But even if I were to pour myself into her a hundred times, we would part strangers. I understood all this as she descended the last few steps, one hand closing the bodice of her gown, she's still holding her dress together, the other hand holding the avern, whose pole she used as a staff and carried like a baculus. And yet I loved her still, or would have loved her if I could. A baculus is a staff of authority, like a bishop carries. And some people are going to like this. Dionysus carries a baculus. I don't think Agia is a bishop or Dionysus, but Quetzal <laughs> in the Book of the Long Sun always carries a baculus. The thing is here is he's talking about Agia's duality. One hand, she's holding up her the bodice of her dress as if mm-hmm. for um, yeah, modesty for, sake, for yeah. modesty's sake. And in the other hand, she's carrying a deadly avern. And that is the relationship that Severian and Agia has. I, in my opinion, that's the relationship that they had, one that was profoundly dysfunctional and probably mm-hmm. unhealthy, but that they, you know, I can't quit you. So. Yeah. One thing we didn't mention is that there's maybe a simpler reason that Severian is totally misreading all this stuff about where he he's telling himself, oh, she still loves me. Yeah. She's still at the very least. It just needs to get the claw from him, right? <laughs> like if, if nothing else, <laughs> even if she doesn't go through with the whole thing and he doesn't go to the fields, at the very least, she knows I got to get that claw out of his back. Um, and that's one thing I does in the last chapter, I'm trying to remember now, did he ever, did Wolf ever ex- give us a glimpse of where the saber tash was in relationship in the room? Like, with, cause he, he does point a lot of times about how the sword was over here mm-hmm. or clothes were further away over here. It's like, there are points in there where he's very specifically pointing out where things are in the room. And I'm, I, I was skimming back through and I don't find a mention of the saber tash, but that would be interesting if like, if there's a way to look back in the chapter and figure out, okay, was, was she just trying to maneuver some way that she could grab it and run or something? I don't like think that. it's ever mentioned, but I think he must have that. I, it attaches to his belt. So he, I think he always has it. He certainly has it when he leaves the room to write the note. Yeah. It's interesting that he doesn't see it while, when he is putting the note away. Mm-hmm. But if she were to pick his pocket at this point, she'd have no place to put it. She's, all she has is a gown that doesn't really cover anything. Yeah. So she has to wait in order to get that. She's got two things going on simultaneously. I think that's what's being described here. She loves Severian. She loves the con. She loves the game. She can't choose between the two of them. And that is that is what will break them up, certainly in this universe. I think probably in the last one. I do think we're also supposed to wonder here if Severian is 
overstating how much she loved him. I mean, that that one sentence that you read a second ago, Asia enjoyed my admiration and would have been moved to ecstasy by my caresses. <laughs> That's where you're like, really? Are you sure about that? Um, you know, they, you have a very high opinion of your caresses. Well, right? that's um, true about him, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but but that's one of those lines where it's again you could take a look at it and say, ah, oh, but this is where Severian is far overstating his own power, maybe doing a little projection where it's not that she's obsessed with him; it's that he's still obsessed with her for whatever reason. That aspect of an unreliable narrator is always available to us in this story. In this case, I think that something true is being conveyed here. If it were that he's totally wrong about all this, then all of this aside that he's doing about men and love and men and women in love would really have no payoff at all. To me, he's saying something. He's saying something that's real, whatever it is. I do think that even with all these other things that she's trying to pull, Asia still does seem to be displaying some kind of feeling mm-hmm. towards Severian. Yeah. And it's complicated and messy. It's certainly not as pure and as obsessed as I think he tries to say that it is. But it, it does make more sense to me that a lot of her panic and weirdness after this is probably because she was possibly starting to feel something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, whether it's just from here or from First Severian. So let's get back to the story. The boy comes back and says, Trudeau's gone, Cook says. She was out fetching water because the girl was gone. I think this means that one of the staff was off work or unavailable. And she's seen him running off. His things is gone from the muse, too. Uh, Muse means a lot of things, but in this case, it means stables with living quarters. So... Trudeau took off. He took off just now. He ran because he heard Severian was asking about him. He knows he's from the Madachin. It's like the worst kind of cop asking about you. I mean, what would anyone do, really? (laughs) Aban says to Severian, did he steal from you? But Severian says, he did me no harm. And I suspect he was trying to do good in whatever he did do. I'm sorry I cost you a servant. Aben is a silver linings kind of guy. Well, I owed him wages, which I won't have to pay. So there's that. Then Dorcas apologizes. And I am sorry to have taken your joy from you upstairs. I would not have deprived you. But Severian, I love you. (laughs) You know, Agia is a train wreck and nothing but trouble. But Dorcas... Come on, give me a break. (laughs) (laughs) And then the last sentence of the chapter. Somewhere, not far off, the silver voice of a trumpet called to the renaissance stars. Yeah, that line with Dorcas just coming out and saying, I love you, (laughs) is so perfectly matched with the sound of the trumpet, which is like, and now here comes the craziness, right? Because that's in some (laughs) ways, that's kind of, what we're saying about Dorcas here. It's also a neat little twist because Severian, right, has been talking this whole time. Oh, Asia loved me after all. I loved Asia. And then out of left field, here's this other, you know, Dorcas is back and and she's an entirely different personality, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. I I can understand if you want to, you know, have sex with this woman upstairs. I'm sorry to have spoiled that for you, but I love you, Severian. Yeah. Um, and I feel like this is maybe one of those places where sometimes people would accuse Wolf of saying, yeah, the, the women are all like wish fulfillment fantasies and things like that. And if you read this straight, yeah, it could be that way. But I feel like with everything else going on, Wolf is trying to point out that here all these statements of love, even when Severian thinks he's being straightforward about, I did love someone and Dorcas really loved me. I think he's also pointing out they're only saying that because underneath there is all sorts of craziness and mixed up intentions and Mm -hmm. projections and, you know, dislocations of feelings and whatnot going on. Because of course, Dorcas doesn't really love Severian right now. He's just the only stable thing that she knows. And again, maybe there is something that she recognizes him as family <laughs> you know yeah, in some way exactly. and and it's just misplaced you know what what should be you know maternal or grand maternal mm-hmm. <laughs> love is actually something else then it starts to make sense as as yeah on the surface all this stuff looks like naive and and crazy but it's actually covering over all kinds of mixed up um and misplaced feelings and emotions and it's getting talked about in romantic ways yeah. when maybe in the end it's not really super romantic it's all kinds of, of deeper mess going on and we find out that's really true with dorcas right yeah. i mean i feel like part of the reason why in claw they they split and they go different ways is that dorcas finally comes to the realization too that everything i've been feeling about severian is not legit straightforwardly right. Mm-hmm. right it's it's just it's all messed up in in different ways and so she does finally come to realize that and yeah, so this is this is one of those places where it starts to look like it's very silly. And if you are sort of going along with Severian and just trusting everything he's saying, then yeah, it can kind of look like wish fulfillment, but not really. Right. Well, her feelings for Severian are quite different from Ajia. Ajia's feelings for Severian are self-evidently tied up in sexual desire. She's trying to get him into the Garden of Delectation all day long while they're at the Botanical Gardens. Dorcas feels love. She says, I love you, and she must mean it. But there's there's really nothing sexual or desireless in this feeling. I don't know what she's basing these feelings of love for Severian on. It might well be that she somehow senses that she's, you know, Related, or it's just she's so desperate to attach to mm-hmm. something yeah. and anything, and that he's the only real available thing at that point. You know, he has the same face as Owen. Maybe she sees her baby in his face. Could be. So that's the end of the chapter. So one thing that we did, I didn't mention before, but that I feel like this chapter has a couple things that you could, especially I'm thinking like this is back grad school things, like <laughs> back when you were looking for things that had to fit certain types of literary theories and whatnot. This chapter is ripe for a certain set of things that you could put under like deconstruction or, or post-structuralism, um, especially with language and names, a couple things. So the fact that Severian doesn't have the original note, he has to sit down and copy it. So now the thing that he's mm-hmm. going to have is a very clear copy, but it's not the original thing. Um, and that idea of words and language being mere copies of other marks rather than having some tie to the original thing. Um, that's a very common sort of deconstructive 
idea. Also, then they have the weird discussion about all the different Trudeaus in the world, right? Where <laughs> like, which uh, supposedly a name is supposed to signify a real singular individual. Whereas here where it's like, oh, it could be all kinds of people. Right. And he comes up, you know, with the most unlikely things. Oh yeah, my brother-in-law or whatever it was. Right, right. <laughs> Instead of the guy <laughs> who's like, right downstairs. <laughs> yeah. Um, but then when you mix that up with all this stuff we've been talking about, which you can also read as Severian trying to really imply all kinds of motivations and feelings from expressions and looks and attitudes of Asia when he just sees her right there as a second. What I feel like you get is kind of more of that idea of this is a chapter where all the signs of things that we're supposed to be reading in order to tell us the truth of what's going on are just totally misfiring. Like there is no, Severian is just at this stage in his life, possibly missing all the real reasons why things are happening that he, he yeah. could be wrong about as yet that Dorcas is in love with him, but she's really kind of wrong about that. Um, about the reasons why it just, when it, when I was reading it this time and they had that little thing where he very obviously copies out a note and now it's it's a note that's now written by Severian and not by Owen you know a deconstructionist would have tons of fun getting in here with, and just playing around with different ways that the signs aren't matching up to what they're supposed to but the fact of the matter is is that I think all the stuff we've done really with that discussion of what's the real feeling there between Asia and Severian that's tied up with that idea that it's hard to tell what the real feelings are from the way that they're acting to each other. And we're having to really start to read in and develop all these, you know, different theories and different reasons of why they might be feeling the way they are, because it's really hard to tell what's going on inside from the outside. Mm -hmm. But no, so it's not a lot happens here. In fact, I mean, we were talking about is this, is this chapter worthy of its own episode? <laughs> and I think, I think once you think about all those aspects of this chapter about recognizing real feelings and, and how to understand them. Yeah. There's, there's a lot going on here. Right. Even just, even if you're just looking at Severian's character development, this is one of those places I feel like where you can really get a sense of him not being fully fleshed out quite yet. Not, not, I mean, not like a failure of Wolf, not of characterization, mm -hmm. but as just a young person, like yeah. he's still just really trying to get a sense of why do I feel the way I do about things? And he's with a bunch of other people who also don't quite know why they're feeling the way they are, particularly Dorcas. Right. So that's it. For your corrections, comments, and addenda, you can reach out to us on Facebook at the Rereading Wolf Podcast Facebook group or on the subreddit, on email at rereadingwolf at gmail.com, on the YouTube channel, on Twitter, on Instagram. We're ready to talk about any chapter, no matter how far back. Bring it on. And as you can see from all the comments, it doesn't necessarily have to be about a specific chapter. Tell us what we're doing well and what you want to see more of. This was a really short chapter. And somehow we found discovered a whole lot to talk about, particularly me. I'm sure that there's a lot of people who have alternate explanations about what's going on here with Severian and Asia and what he means by these asides. And I'm if really you want to keep going that. with first Severian, great. If you want to talk about something that is totally not first Severian focused about this chapter, please. <laughs> we are very happy to do that too. And I just, you know, we're... I, it's kind of funny behind the scenes. You and I are having a lot of fun 
talking about Asia. And honestly, when we started this, I didn't think I'd be spending nearly this much mental energy on Asia. So it's kind of fun to really be digging in and, and trying to figure her out. Yeah. So please uh, chime in and help us figure this one out. But thanks for everything y'all do. This doesn't work without you. We'll see you on the social weddings. And get ready for death by flower. No. No good you say. Well, that's good enough for me. Suddenly, it's a very unseasoned notes. Let me try this again. Things were going pretty hot and heavy on the ca- Yeah. An age à toi. Sorry. <laughs> ah, seven age. Seven age. Things are going pretty <laughs> hot and heavy on the couch with Sev. It sounds like this. Okay.